So it's not the pain of the past that's contributing to our addiction. It's our shame. Mm-hmm. But then something else that she discovered was at some point, the causal experience is superseded by the shame in driving the addiction. Hmm. So it wasn't just the experience. It's what came out of the experience that's driving the sexual compulsivity. Um, I used to say to, to clients that we have to heal the wounds of the past. Mm-hmm. Now what I say is we have to heal your shame that comes from the wounds of the past. Mm-hmm. And shame are the lies that I believe about myself and believe about God or the divine and who I am that come from my pain. So as long as I believe I'm worthless, that I'm pathetic, that I'm a loser, that I'm a pervert, as long as I'm trying to use that shame to get free, that shame is actually holding me hostage. Welcome to the Faithful and True Podcast. Today we're back with part two of a series featuring Dr. Greg Miller together with Taylor Chambers from the Porn Resilience Summit that took place late last year. Uh, Greg, the event was uh, tagged the pilgrimage from unwanted porn use to fearless sexuality. And Greg's conversation was called The Principles of Porn Addiction Recovery. Here now is Greg Miller with Taylor Chambers in part two of this great series. Now, okay, so you mentioned there are, there are other things that drive this. It's not, it's not the, the legitimate need is not, you know, um, uh, more sex in one's life, for example, mm-hmm. more pornography or whatever it may be. We have to get to that legitimate need. And there are things that drive this. And so what are some of the, the contributing factors, the, the drivers that um, uh, might, might set someone, someone up for this or move them closer to that death star, so to speak? Like, right. What are some of these things that, that move us toward that place? Well, kind of the way that we talk about it is what are those things that increase my vulnerability to either becoming a sexual addict, addict or giving into the sexual addiction? And mm-hmm. I want to, if, if it's okay, I want to share a little bit of history. And so um, Patrick Carnes um, was one of the first to really talk about sexual addiction. Back in the late 70s, early 80s, he wrote a couple of books, Don't Call It Love, um, Out of the Shadows. And really, he was the first ones to take the principles of recovery and apply it to sexual behavior. And if you read those books, one of the things that is spoken pretty clearly is that one of, and maybe the significant driver for addiction is some sort of significant a trauma or abuse. Um, he would do research with those who came through his um, treatment facility, and there was a high percentage of them that would identify some sort of abuse, emotional, physical, sexual. And so therefore, one of the correlations was that abuse is a significant contributing factor to sexual addiction. Um, what happened, though, is because in the language, there was somewhat of a narrow definition. It was almost as if in order to struggle with sexual addiction, you had to experience a significant trauma. And kind of we talk about in the therapeutic community, a big T trauma that was invasive. Mm-hmm. Well, our founder, Mark Laser, came along and took those principles and expanded it a little bit to say, actually, not only is it big T trauma invasion, but it's also big T trauma that is abandonment. 
And the way mm. that we talk about it is invasion is when a boundary is too loose and something happens to a child that should not happen. And mm -hmm. abandonment is when the boundary is too rigid and the child has a need and that need goes unmet. Mm -hmm. And so for years, that was kind of the founding principles. If you have significant invasion, significant abandonment, that sets the foundation for sexual addiction. And so mm -hmm. I have a wound, I have exposure to sexuality, and that creates a vulnerability to using sex as a coping or addiction strategy. Mm -hmm. Well, in the work that I've been doing, I've been at Faithful and True for about 14 years as the director of the men's workshop. Lots of men have come through. And one of the things that I've heard pretty consistently was a guy would say, I don't know why I'm here. Growing up, it wasn't that bad. In fact, kind of mm -hmm. the language was, I don't know why I'm here. I come from a good family. And basically yeah. what they're saying is, I don't think I have big T trauma in my life, significant invasion, significant abandonment. And yeah. I heard this enough. And I also heard enough stories that I began to say, hmm, there is some truth to this. So what might be some of the other contributing factors? So I took yeah. the principles that I was hearing from men's stories. I began to categorize them. And several years ago, I did a research project looking specifically at some of the causal events that might be contributing to sexual addiction and acting out. Mm. And my target yeah. audience were men and women between the ages of 20 and 35, because I wanted to see what specifically might be the impact of technology. And I wanted to look at that age group that really when they were younger was when technology, the internet became more of a significant factor. Yeah. And what happened was we had over 400 people participate in the survey. Of that, we got about 330 that were usable and mm -hmm. one third were women, two third were men. And so we were able to use that as the core of our study. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, the vast majority of people define themselves as people of faith and also identified as being very active in their faith. Mm. And we looked at several things. So we did look at invasion using the definition of invasion is something that happens to a child that shouldn't have happened because um, of loose boundaries. And we identified specific invasive things. And one of the things I wanted to avoid was somebody identifying for themselves if they had been invaded, because we have a tendency to minimize. So mm -hmm. we look specifically at invasive behaviors and simply asked on a scale from one to five, did you never experience this or did you experience this frequently? So they could do a self-evaluation, but it was more focused on behavior. So mm -hmm. we looked at invasion in the home and we looked at invasion out of the home and we looked at invasion out of the home by adults and out of the home by peers. Mm. And so people were able to evaluate that. We also looked at abandonment. And again, abandonment is when my needs go unmet. And that was one of the things that was incredibly difficult for people to identify. Because if you ask somebody if they were abandoned, a lot of times they have no idea because how do you miss something that you never had? So True. again, we looked at very specific abandonment types of experiences on a scale from one to five, never um, frequently kind of that type of assessment. We also looked at exposure to technology and exposure specifically to pornography. Um, and so asked a lot of questions about that. You know, um, when did the Internet first come into your life? When did you first get a smartphone? And I can simply say for those who identified high on the sexual compulsivity scale, they would also identify that when they got smart technology, when they got a smartphone, the use of pornography um, increased significantly. Mm 
Mm -hmm. So we could see the role of technology. We could see the age factor um, and how old you were when you began to have some of these resources. And what was interesting is from the, the exposure to pornography, we saw a couple of things increase. One is shame about one's body. Um, one of the scales that we did is we used a body shame scale and um, a core belief around your body and your physicalness. And what we saw was for those people that were exposed to pornography as children, it increased significantly their body shame. Mm. Something else that we saw was it increased their experimentation with other children. And so we also measured experimentation using very specific behaviors. Was this ever a part of your experience younger than the age of 12? And we saw that where there was use of pornography, it increased experimentation, which also increased shame. And something else that we evaluated was what I call performance-based faith. Now, a lot of the people who come through our center would define themselves as people of faith. And one of the things they would say is, I don't know why I'm here. I come from a family and I come from a family that goes to church. Mm. And so we begin to evaluate, okay, you go to a church. But how helpful is the church in addressing this issue? And so we evaluated performance-based faith. um, And so what we discovered was it wasn't whether or not you go to church. It was what did you experience at that church? And kind of broad categories, performance-based faith is one where the theology is based upon shame. The motivation is fear and righteousness is defined by behavior. And so if you grew up in a church where if you made good choices, you are a righteous person, if you made bad choices, you are an unrighteous person, what ends up happening is you start to focus on your behavior as a sense of your value, identity, and safety. Right. If you were motiva- motivated by fear, then it makes perfect sense. You're afraid of rejection, so therefore it sends you into silence around some of these issues. So if I'm doing something that I feel bad about, I'm not going to share it. If I feel like I'm something horrible is going to happen if I share it, I'm not going to share it. And mm-hmm. then if the theology is based upon shame, I'm being taught that I'm worthless because of my behavior, then it's going to be difficult for me to share it because I already believe I have this shame and the church experience is intensifying my shame. Yeah. And if someone scored high on the performance-based faith scale, obviously it's going to increase their shame. Mm-hmm. Something else that we looked at was comparison-based identity. Mm-hmm. And this is how much of my value, identity, and safety come from how I compare to other people. Um, do I look for that comparison? Um, how often do I look at the social media? How often do I listen to other people's comments? Um, do I want to know how successful or, or not successful somebody else is? And we tried to not just ask somebody, do you think you get your value and identity from how you compare to somebody else? We look for some behaviors that we think can identify that. Mm-hmm. And then the final specific category we looked at was parenting style. And this isn't about whether or not a parent was um, uh, aggressively or um, significantly abusive. It had mm-hmm. to do with the culture of the family. And the way that I would say it is if you grew up in a family, where it was kind of the parent's way or the highway. There was no negotiation. There was no conversation. And I've worked with a lot of men that would say, just having a different opinion from my parents was seen as rebellious. Mm. So they liked hamburgers and I liked hot dogs. Just to like hot dogs was seen as rebellious. They liked this team and I liked this team. 
that was just seen as rebellious. So there was supposed to be total conformity in the family system. Mm. And to speak it out loud was seen as talking back. Mm -hmm. So it's not, was it abusive, but was conformity so seen as a value that I wasn't allowed to have my opinion or have uh, my perspective. And what Mm -hmm. we saw was the higher somebody scored on that conformity scale or that parenting authority scale, the more shame they had. Mm. So now we're looking at a variety of different things. We're looking at how much performance-based faith there was. The more there was, the more shame there was. How much conformity in the family system there was, more shame there was. More invasion, more shame. More abandonment, more shame. More exposure to pornography, more shame. So now what we realize is you don't need a big T trauma. You don't need some significant experience. Each of these things are contributing. And it wasn't just, did I go to church? What kind of church did I go to? What did I experience at church? It wasn't that I, did I come from a good family? It's what were some of the cultural aspects of that family? And one of the things that we saw that was fascinating was of all of these things that can contribute to shame specifically for men, the number one thing was if they experienced invasion out of the home by peers. And another way to say that is if they experienced bullying growing up from right. their peers, that was the number one thing that contributed to their shame. Now, oh, interesting. I want to say at this point, I am not a statistician. Math is not my strong suit. So I knew from the very beginning, after I gathered this information, I was going to need somebody else. And so I was introduced to this woman that was just brilliant. So Mm. she's going through all of the data. She's sending me facts. She's sending me things that they're discovering, which was fascinating. Well, one of the things that we saw, and she's the one that discovered it, is there are all of these causal events to our shame. But specifically, when it came to scoring high on the sexual compulsivity scale, the more shame we had, the more it contributed to the sexual compulsivity scale. So it's not our pain that is actually the pain of the past that's contributing to our addiction. It's our shame. Mm -hmm. But then something else that she discovered was at some point, the causal experience is superseded by the shame in driving the addiction. So it wasn't just the experience, it's what came out of the experience that's driving the sexual compulsivity. Um, I used to say to to clients that we have to heal the wounds of the past. Mm -hmm. Now what I say is we have to heal your shame that comes from the wounds of the past. Mm -hmm. And shame are the lies that I believe about myself and believe about God or the divine and who I am that come from my pain. So as long as I believe I'm worthless, that I'm pathetic, that I'm a loser, that I'm a pervert, as long as I'm trying to use that shame to get free, that shame is actually holding me hostage. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It becomes more of that salt water. No matter how much porn or sexual activity we participate in, it won't take that, that um, hunger or thirst away. And no matter how much shame we use to drive it, particularly when it's stemming from, you know, being performance-based or conforming or, um, you know, uh, comparing to others, things like that, you can see exactly why that keeps the whole thing going rather than providing relief. Absolutely. Well, and part of it is that I often say, as long as we're in shame, we're in our addiction Mm -hmm. because we feel shame before we act out and we feel shame after we act out. 
The one time that we don't feel shame is when we're acting out. Mm. Many addicts are using their acting out as an attempt to silence the voice of shame that is so strong in their heads. So this really is shame is the game. It's the thing that we have to go after. You know, one of the questions that guys would ask me is, do I have to remember every painful experience of my life to get free? And I intuitively knew the answer was no, but I didn't know why the answer was no. Now I know. I don't have to know all of the experiences that contributed to my shame. And it is important that I understand the lies of shame that I have. And I also understand the healing that is necessary in order to get free from those lies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And an example I would use is, let's say, given my story and my experiences, one of my core beliefs or one of my shames is that I am unlovable, mm-hmm. that I just cannot be loved. Mm-hmm. And so what right. happens is people try to love me, but I'm not able to retain that because I don't believe it's possible. Yeah. Uh, an image that I use is the difference between a colander and a bowl. And if you're familiar with the colander, it's that thing we use in cooking when you do pasta and you pour the pasta and the water into the colander and the water just pours out. Well, for many people, our souls are like a colander. We have these holes, these lies that we believe. And so people are trying to pour love and truth and grace into us, but we're not able to retain it because we don't believe it's possible. So Mm -hmm. my work is to heal those old wounds so that I go from being a colander to a bowl So when truth is poured into me, I'm able to retain it. Mm -hmm. And I'm married. And for years, my my wife really tried to love me well. But because of these lies of shame, when she poured love into me, it just poured through me. I wasn't able to retain it. And one of the things that my own recovery has given me is my ability to hold on to the truth when people speak into it. Now, Mm -hmm. this journey of healing is ongoing. So am I completely free of those lies? Absolutely not. So what I tell men is over time, what we can do is turn down the volume of those lies so they're not as loud and they are less easily triggered. And so therefore, yes, I can still get triggered into them, but they're not as accessible as they once were. Right, right. It's it's beautifully put. Like we we can turn down the volume and it seems like the heart of both the, the symptoms and the healing really lie in that kind of nexus of of shame. Mm-hmm. And the way we um, believe that we are, the identity that we adopt kind of within ourselves, um, that's kind of the, the crucial turning point for a lot of the work. And it's, it's informative and, and track me and, and see if I'm, <laughs> if I'm summarizing this uh, appropriately. But there are, there are things from our childhood, from our past that leave us vulnerable to this, you know, to, to using sex to, uh, or, or pornography to meet legitimate needs. And some of those contributing factors led to that shame in the first place. And that includes things like trauma, like the um, the invasion and the um, not negligence. What was the term? Abandonment. Uh, uh, yeah, that's right. Um, so the invasion and the abandonment, um, as well as some, you know, just lowercase T traumas. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're looking at, you know, things like comparison, conforming into the family culture. Um, you're looking at performance-based faith um, and other things, and and those can set up some of the preconditions for shame. Mm-hmm. And then gaining insight into those is useful because it brings our awareness to that shame, and then that's where the work is really uh, focused on. Right. Am I getting that correct? Is, yeah, is that absolutely. in the ballpark there? And, and part of it is 
you know, if I, and this is my interpretation, shame is based upon lies. Mm-hmm. And so healing comes from truth. And so it's experiencing the fullness of the truth. And I mm-hmm. often say our truth is found in our andness. Mm-hmm. Um, most of us live in an either or world. You're either good or bad. You're either right or wrong. You're either in or out. And that either or world cannot contain and hold the fullness of truth. We need andness. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, I look at pornography. Yes, I have compulsive sexual behavior and mm-hmm. I'm a good person. You know, for those of people, for those people who are people of faith, and I am God's beloved child, Mm -hmm. those two things can be held together in truth. And what makes that andness possible is grace. Mm. And grace is how we experience others when they live and when we're able to live in the fullness of truth. You know, one of the ways that I believe we shed shame, and that's the healing process, is we experience the fullness of truth in the context of safe community. Um, Our shame is created in community. Our shame must be healed in community. Mm. Um, If our shame gets triggered when people are seeing us and our fear is that others are going to see us the way that we see ourselves, then the healing is for others to see us fully and to love us fully. Mm. That is the process of healing and redemption. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Moving toward intimacy you know, in a partnership or in, you know, more broadly in community um, is kind of that vulnerability allowing ourselves to be seen. And what you're saying is that that's not only a reward in and of itself, you know, fostering that that intimacy and in, in community that we kind of naturally desire anyway. It's also the very healing process that will help alleviate the shame and replace those lies with truth. Well, we would even say you cannot heal mm-hmm. isolated. You have to be in community. Uh-huh. Um, one, one other thing is, you know, I teach that to the extent that we are known is the extent that we can be loved. Mm-hmm. And that is the intimacy. Intimacy occurs when I'm known, I'm safe, and I'm connected. So it begins with that knowing piece. That's why for addicts who are hiding in their shame, you know, many times sex addiction is referred to as an intimacy disorder because the chaos of the hiding is actually keeping me from what ultimately I desire. And so we often talk about we have to be safe enough to risk enough to be transformed enough that we're willing to try it again. That Mm. is the process of redemption. That is the process of nurturing intimacy and relationship where I do let myself be known. So I've got to be safe enough that I'm willing to risk so that I can be known so that I can then be transformed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think this is why, you know, I, I'm a, my favorite novel is East of Eden, which probably isn't, you know, suited for everyone. <laughs> it's kind of a rough read and maybe pretty boring for, for some tastes, but um, it kind of covers that andness. Um, although, mm-hmm. of course, it doesn't use that term, um, but kind of recognizing the complexity of, of how we truly are. And, um, and you know, I, I, my, my group program is called Nevertheless conveying that very same idea of like mm-hmm. there have been struggles nevertheless um there is more to it than just that kind of mm-hmm. kind of an idea and it gets really difficult for us to see us in that way it really looks like hey when you look at my history there's all this evidence that says i do bad things therefore mm-hmm. i am a bad person right and so it's a really strong invitation of the recovery process um as you're defining it here which i think is so brilliant is that it's learning to see more than just those those problematic things. We take them seriously, right? We we are taking responsibility 
and there is more to the story. Um, and I think that's such a hopeful, hopeful place, even though a lot of times our hope wants us to, you know, I'm not bad. I'm good. Right. Um, you know, I think it's a, maybe an easier journey and, and more real to say, I'm not bad. I'm, I'm good and bad. <laughs> right? I'm, I'm a mixture. Right? Yeah. It's not either or. And part yeah. of what's true is early in this recovery process, we cannot find hope many times within us. Yeah. I mean, it is the overwhelming. All we can see is the chaos and the destruct, destruction and the pain that we've caused. And yeah. so therefore that's another role that community is that the people who are just down the road, who are on the same journey, they can hold hope for us. They can see the endness of the situation when we can't. They can remind us of our truth when we can't find the truth in us. And they can demonstrate grace when we need grace. And they can also model responsibility when it's important that we take responsibility. Mm-hmm. You know, one, one of the pieces of this is that ownership piece. And um, when we're talking about ownership, I think there's three things that are in ownership. The first is acknowledgement. You know, that's why I start with, I am an addict or I struggle with addiction or however that is meaningful for me, but I'm going to start with some sort of acknowledgement. The second part of ownership though, is I create a plan to change. This -hmm. is what I'm going to do about this. And then the third thing is I implement that plan. Mm -hmm. If all I do is acknowledge and I don't do the rest, then eventually my acknowledgement will be hollow and meaningless. It's that person in our lives that's constantly resp- um, apologizing for something, but we're not really seeing active change. Eventually, the apology doesn't mean that much. But when yeah. we see the acknowledgement, we see a plan to change, and we see that person implementing that plan, even if they're not doing it perfectly or consistently, that's where the ownership piece begins to create safety. And mm. ownership is essential in creating safety in relationships. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, it kind of ties in a lot of those themes you started with, which is, you know, take it seriously, take responsibility and take some action. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's not only, um, you know, um, cultivating a stronger sense of self. Of course, it's very stabilizing for the people around us who have to deal with us. And when they can start to see, Hey, this is taken seriously. There's a plan in place and there's, there's follow up. Um, you know, I can't imagine anything more reassuring. Right. Um, than to see like, hey, this is going somewhere. Yeah. Knowing when, that it's going in the right direction is is perhaps even more important than getting it to any particular destination. Right. And one thing I would say is in that taking it seriously. So one end of the pendulum is to minimize it. Right. It's no big deal. The other end of the pendulum, though, is to catastrophize it. Mm-hmm. One of the ways that we're catastrophizing is if there's no hope. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of it is even if I'm in relationship with someone who is struggling. Maybe there's not hope for my partner to change because I don't see that person really engaging a process. There's still hope for me because my hope cannot be based upon what my partner does. My hope has to transcend my circumstances in order for it to be hope. So Mm -hmm. if I'm going to take it seriously, I'm not going to minimize it. And I'm also not going to catastrophize it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Trying to see things as they really are. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, and again, community can help so much because a lot of times it's very difficult to be objective in our own stories. Mm-hmm. And so getting the feedback, the input, seeing it from the outside in another person's life, those can be very, very telling and help us kind of get that uh, more intuitive sense of, you know, where this really lies as opposed to, you know, swimming to the extremes there. Right. So, yeah.
Okay. Well, man, uh, so we've covered a lot of ground um, and I've loved um, the the framing. I've loved the metaphors. I mean, I, this is, I think, a very useful way of looking at things for, for people. Um, it's very sensible. I loved hearing about the, the research and um, how you approached that. And um, just, I feel like that kind of research is so valuable and so needed. Um, so uh, as we close things out, though, are, are there any final thoughts that you want to kind of uh, to polish off the message or have we covered the the breadth of things? Well, you know, it's always good when you end with hope, you yeah. know, and I'm glad that that's the point that we ended on um, because yeah. of the work that we do. Um, you know, we've talked about the fact that we do these workshops every month for men who struggle with sexual compulsivity. And then one of the things that we want to do is offer hope yeah. um, and there was a, a, a man who came and did his PhD dissertation and research project on our workshop. And so for six months, he came and um, uh, did a pretest and a post-test. And what he saw at the end of the workshop was that when men left, they left with um, less shame, more hope, and mm. more openness to change. And mm. what we know is those three things in combination are what can propel us forward. So right. that idea of having more hope that there can be transformation um, and leaving with less shame those lies that hold me hostage and then that openness to change. When I'm exp experiencing that trinity, then I can live in the freedom that I desire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's beautiful. I think it really is hopeful to hear of this way of kind of making sense of things mm -hmm. and to try and start to engage with ourselves and to have some idea of the value, for example, of community or, or other things in supporting us on that path. So, um, well, thank you, Greg. I appreciate it so much. Now, for you viewers, I'm I'm sure this is maybe one of those that you need to listen to a couple of times because we did cover so much ground. But I would encourage you to con consider like what what's most meaningful, and um, is there an element that you really resonated with? For example, you know something from the past that really struck a chord, and seeing how that plays into current day shame or, or something along those lines. Now, if you are interested in following up with Greg or the work um, that they do at Faithful and True, um, a really good starting point would be, the, I mean, the website itself, faithfulandtrue.com. And then faithfulandtrue.com slash, slash questionnaire um, would be a good starting point. It's the, it's a questionnaire that helps to, um, uh, I, I forget the, the specific focus. Is it to um, it look kind at of severity? Yeah, it's kind of to help assess mm -hmm. maybe some of the intensity of my choices, but also kind of that identifying the out of controlness or the inability to stop mm -hmm. on my own. So right. it's just a, a place to start to see um, and uh, to assess maybe where I am on my journey and understanding my own choices. Yeah, an important uh, starting place for that self-reflection of like, you know, Hey, what, what are we dealing with here? Mm -hmm. And so faithfulandtrue.com slash questionnaire and then faithfulandtrue.com itself um, can lead you to information about the workshops, the podcast, and some of the other you know resources and services that are available that way. So, okay. Well, great. Man. Well, thanks for including me and inviting me. It's been great. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. I've loved to get to know you and I love that you're doing such solid work with so many good people. So keep it up. Thank you for joining us today on the Faithful and True podcast. We hope that this two-part series featuring Dr. Greg Miller has been beneficial to you. We invite you to visit faithfulandtrue.com where we offer many available resources to you. 
If you find yourself needing our help at Faithful and True, we invite you to visit us. Visit our, our website at faithfulandtrue.com where you'll find over 400 podcasts like this one as well as other resources, our online bookstore, <clears throat> and all of the necessary online information and registration for our three-day intensive workshops. The Men's Journey Workshop we offer every month and online registration and information is available at faithfulandtrue.com. Just click on workshops, then click on the Men's Journey Workshop. We also have the same <clears throat> information available for the Women's Journey Workshop and the Couples Journey Workshop. We invite you to visit faithfulandtrue.com today to access all of these uh, valuable resources for you. Until, again, <clears throat> until we meet with you again, we invite you to have a week that's filled with many blessings and with great vision.